Welcome to Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022, a series by the Planetary Podcast, part of the Civil Society Celebration and Declaration for Stockholm Plus 50, a half century later after the historic 1972 UN Conference on the Human Environment. In Common Home Conversations, you will hear high-level political and public figures, academics, and influential activists discuss what should be the content of the high-level declaration foreseen for 2022. Our planet faces a myriad of catastrophic environmental challenges, from climate change to widespread biodiversity loss to desertification. The science is clear. The state of our global environment is deteriorating at an unprecedented rate, highlighting the need for fundamental transformative changes across our legal, economic, social, political, and technological spheres. Thus, there is an urgent need to reach a common ground within civil society and around it build a civil society declaration with the potential to be the needed starting point for a paradigm shift towards a safe and sustainable future for our global community. Common Home Conversations is the place to discuss the challenges posed by climate change, as well as possible solutions to help create a stabilized Earth and ensure that the Civil Society 2022 Declaration can be a true game changer. Now, here is your host, founder, and CEO of the Planetary Press, Kimberly White. Hello, and welcome to Common Home Conversations. Today, we're joined by Jojo Mehta, co-founder and executive director of Stop Ecocide International. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Lovely to be here. So you're the co-founder and executive director of Stop Ecocide International. Could you please share with our listeners, what is Ecocide? Ecocide is broadly understood to mean mass damage and destruction of ecosystems. In other words, serious harm to nature. And our campaign exists to promote and sort of progress the criminalization of ecocide, making it a crime at the international level. So when did ecocide first enter into environmental law discussions and when did your organization first get started? The word ecocide was actually first used in 1970 to describe the awful damage created by Agent Orange, the defoliant in Vietnam. And it was first used on the international stage by Swedish Premier Olaf Palme at the first UN Environment Conference in 1972. But the word, although it sort of remained active in sort of legal and political circles in terms of discussions of potentially looking at environmental crime and so on, that was mostly not in the public domain. The concept was resurrected really by a particular pioneering UK lawyer called Polly Higgins, who was a dear friend of mine and with whom I worked very closely. She's no longer with us. She died in 2019, but she dedicated the last 10 years of her life to this concept of making ecocide an international crime. And we co-founded the public campaign together, which is now Stop Ecocide International, back in 2017. At the time, we thought we were doing it in order to raise funds, in order to crowdfund, essentially, for the diplomatic work of moving this forward at the International Criminal Court. What we've actually realised over time and our growing teams are aware of now is that where we have teams on the ground and we actually have teams or associate groups in about 17 or 18 countries now, you know, where those conversations are happening at grassroots level, we find it is also then landing in the political conversation as well. So we're very concretely seeing that the growth of the campaign has had a very direct impact on the work at the top level. Excellent. So can you share some examples of ecocide that we're currently facing? 
I suppose the idea of ecocide as a crime is to encapsulate the most serious environmental damages, because as we know, much of our economy is ultimately based on using the environment as a resource and creating some levels of damage. But ecocide aims at those really large harms that could be put into the sort of atrocity bracket of international crimes. So perhaps serious levels of deforestation, serious industrial incidents uh, that could have been prevented had proper safety protocols been followed. I mean, I'm thinking of things like Deepwater Horizon or Fukushima, or, you know, incidents like this, which, are, you know, have huge impact. Potentially, you know, one could be looking at situations like the pollution levels in the Niger Delta, which have effectively been, you know, ecocidal now for some decades. And, you know, that's been very interesting in terms of recent legal cases, you know, looking at where can blame be ascribed for these things. So, yeah, those are just a sort of a few examples of the kinds of things that, um, you know, that ecocide might refer to. Now, exactly who would be held accountable? Would it be governments or corporations? The thing with ecocide as a crime is that when we're looking at an international crime, we are looking at individual responsibility and being able to point a finger effectively and say that decision there is likely to lead to really severe environmental destruction um, or potentially you know, severe damage to a large population or, or those kinds of things via environmental damage. So I would sort of emphasize that at the International Criminal Court, we are talking about individual responsibility. So you wouldn't be holding a government to, to account or a corporation to account. You would be holding a government minister to account or at the head of a corporation, for example. And actually, that brings me to a really key point around this whole movement, because, and it is now a growing global movement. And that is that the serious damage that we've seen taking place around the world, which has ultimately led us to the climate and ecological crisis that we're in, you know, where we've seen these things happening, they often take place either with impunity, take place legally, or they take place, you know, where a corporation might get a slap on the wrist or a small fine, you know, or sometimes even a really big fine. But the point is, what that does not lead to is a change in practice. And that is what a criminal law potentially has the power to provoke, is a change in practice and actually changing behavior. Because if you're the CEO or, you know, the project manager or whatever it is, you know, the highest sort of point, if you like, of making decisions on a certain project, and you can see or, you know, the knowledge is in the public domain, or it should be certainly within your knowledge, that the decision that you make could lead to severe environmental damage, then you're going to be thinking, hang on a minute, my freedom could be on the line here. And therefore, I'm going to think very carefully about this decision that I make. And it may even mean that the project doesn't get off the drawing board because it potentially could head in that direction. I think it's interesting to think in this context, and this again, just sort of underlines the power of, of it being a criminal law, is that, you know, you're not going to find a company wondering whether they could almost, but not quite, kill a few hundred people which is the approach that is often taken towards regulation. We can spill this many toxins, but not that many toxins. In other words, what can we get away with? Whereas once you make something a crime, once you put it in that criminal sphere, it does become more equivalent to, you're not going to say, you know, how do I almost kill a whole bunch of people? You're going to say, well, actually, I'm not going to go in that direction because that might kill people. I'm going to go in a different direction. And that is the potential power of creating this individual level of criminal responsibility at the highest level. That's an excellent way of putting it. Now, how many countries so far have criminalized ecocide within their legal systems or are in discussions about it? There are 10 countries that have had ecocide or something very similar to it within their penal codes for some years. 
most of them are actually ex-Soviet countries in Eastern Europe that based those laws on the draft code that later became the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which is the document that we're ultimately trying to amend with our campaign. But what we can say is that those particular crimes have not really been utilised in those countries. I mean, you know, one could speculate as to why. I mean, potentially some more basic issues like rule of law or corruption or various other issues have obviously been problematic in some of those areas. However, in terms of the more recent developments and taking environmental crime seriously and approaching it from the perspective of what we're trying to do with this campaign, France is so far the only country to actually legislate and have the word ecocide sort of added to their law. And in a very recent, literally weeks ago, the climate and resilience law that was passed there. But that brings up a very interesting further discussion, which is that the word ecocide as used in that law doesn't really refer to what we refer to when we say ecocide. And indeed, what the French citizens, when they called for that law, were referring to. What it's been used to refer to is a kind of serious pollution event, but potentially a local one. And effectively, it's the kind of crime that could or almost really could be covered by a European directive that was put in place over 10 years ago. So effectively, what's happened is it's been watered down in order to get into the French legislation. But what's interesting about that is it really underlines a key aspect of our campaign, which is that one of the reasons we aim for criminalisation at the international level is that it takes a certain amount of time. I mean, there are several reasons, but this is one. And it is actually very important because if you try to create this legislation overnight, what can happen is you can alienate your corporate sector and you can end up with sort of a lot of antagonisms and people feeling that they can't meet this new law. There's a certain resistance and a certain chaos that can ensue. And that's what France has been living through. It's been quite an an object lesson in this, actually. It's been very interesting. Whereas if you aim for this to happen at the international level, at the International Criminal Court, you're almost by default, you're creating a timescale because it takes time to recruit a large number of countries and you need two thirds of member states to agree to an amendment to add that crime. But what you do with that time period is very, very important because what you're doing is you're showing that this law is approaching, but it's not here yet. And actually that is hugely powerful because the situation that we're in globally is very much like having a leak in a boat. You know, you can't sit at one end of the boat and point at the other end and say, you're the ones that got the leak. Everybody's got to move together. And so if we want the entire global economy to sort of start to shift its approach, which is actually what we ultimately believe this law has the power to drive, everybody concerned, you know, from local businesses to big conglomerates, they all need to be able to see this coming and to know what they need to do about it and to actually engage their strategic departments, people in you know, right across their sector in how do we approach this so that, you know, we come out ahead of this game. And that needs to be an inspiring thing, not a constraining thing. And I like to use this example, which actually comes from a UK cookery program. I don't know if you've ever come across it, but we had a program that was really big in the 90s called Ready, Steady, Cook. Does that ring any bells to you? Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) And we loved that. I mean, the UK went mad for this. And it was, you know, you'd have these chefs on the program and they would be given a time limit and they would be given a set of ingredients and they didn't know in advance what ingredients they were going to be given. But the point is they were given a set of parameters and within that time they had to create their most beautiful dish. That is the way we want the corporate world, the political world. This is how we want everybody looking at this. Here comes a parameter that we're going to have to deal with and it's going to kick in at this point in the future. We may not know exactly what the point is, but within a few years. And so, you know, your beautiful ingredients are the expertise that you have around your own industry. It's like, how do those things measure up? 
One beautiful example is an energy company, I believe from Norway. They were one of the biggest oil and gas companies in Norway, and they transformed themselves into the biggest renewable energy company in that country. And so effectively, they were in the energy industry, right? All they did was change the material facts of what they were producing, but all the rest of the structure was already there. There is huge potential where people can see that there are particular parameters. You could think of it almost as a health and safety law. How do we comply with this new health and safety regulation for the planet, you know, that is actually a criminal law? And how do we approach that? The other part of your question was about who's discussing it now. So parliamentary motions, resolutions or proposals of law have been submitted in Belgium, Portugal, Sweden, Brazil, France, Bolivia, Bangladesh, the UK and Chile. So that's quite a number. I mean, to varying degrees of success and in various degrees of process, if you like. And there are also at least eight ICC, International Criminal Court, member states who have recorded some kind of interest publicly in an amendment to the Rome Statute. And those are Vanuatu, the Maldives, France, Belgium, Finland, Spain, Canada and Luxembourg. So as you can see, there's, there's quite a lot of countries already discussing this. And we can certainly say that there are more who are discussing it behind closed doors. But obviously, we can't say anything about that until they do. And I think also it's worth saying that, you know, some of the really key global figures like Pope Francis, like Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, like Franz Timmermans, the Vice President of the European Commission. So these figures are vocally expressing interest and or strong support for the whole move towards criminalizing ecocide, which is very encouraging. That is very encouraging. And it's great to hear how many countries are currently discussing it and working towards that. I'm really looking forward to seeing more step up, especially after the IPCC report, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. Now, currently there are four crimes listed under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes of aggression. Ecocide was initially considered by the ICC in 1998, but was removed from the drafting process of the Rome Statute. Why should ecocide be listed alongside crimes such as genocide? Yeah, this is a really good question. And we do sometimes have people actually saying to us, you know, how can you possibly say that ecocide is as bad as genocide? But we do strongly believe that the International Criminal Court is where this crime belongs. To specifically address the genocide question, I think what's interesting here is one has to separate the intention from the consequence. Because at the level of intention, genocide is indeed the most heinous crime one could think of. Somebody has to actually intend to destroy a people in whole or in part. And that's massive. I mean, it's unbelievably atrocious. Most ecocide happens as a collateral damage to making money or you know, growing food or whatever it is. But when you look at the consequences, then you really start to see why ecocide needs to be at the level of an international atrocity crime. Because effectively, if we continue with the levels of ecosystem destruction that our culture has developed over the last few decades, we're not just looking at a part of a people being destroyed. We're actually looking at the end of human civilization as we know it, because without healthy ecosystems, we simply can't survive. And we certainly can't, you know, support large cities and all of this. Plus, of course, ecocide is ultimately a root cause of the climate crisis, you know, which the climate crisis is essentially a symptom of decades upon decades of ecocide. We can reduce emissions as much as we like, but if we carry on destroying ecosystems, we're kind of going to find ourselves continually in the same position. So I think it's also worth just looking at the wording of the document itself that governs the International Criminal Court, the Rome Statute, which describes the court as having jurisdiction over those most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole. Now, I think nobody can deny that the global challenge facing us right now is the climate and ecological crisis. 
So to say that ecocide doesn't belong at that level is a nonsense now. It's become very clear that the sort of ever more apocalyptically visible consequences of ecocide are telling us very, very surely that this is a crime that should be up there amongst the crimes of most serious concern to humanity as a whole. Absolutely. And the recent reports from the World Bank and the Code Red IPCC report continue to say how interconnected we are with nature. And we've been hearing that same message from indigenous communities for hundreds of years. We are totally dependent upon nature for our survival, for our well-being, for our economic prosperity. We cannot continue on with business as usual. We're at a point now where, as the UN Secretary General said, the alarm bells are deafening. We need to protect these ecosystems that are so vital to us or we will hit a point of no return. I think you're right. I think the warning signals have been there for an awfully long time, as you say, from indigenous communities, but more recently from the scientific community and also indeed from the corporates themselves. But in the case of the oil and gas companies, they've been trying to sort of cover up that information that they've discovered. So the IPCC report that came out this week is, in fact, it was interesting. Somebody asked me in an interview earlier today, how did you feel when that report came out? And I have to say, it's going to sound weird, but on one level, I felt a kind of relief because it felt like finally this kind of globally accepted body is telling it like it is, is actually being clear and stark about what has happened, what's likely to happen. It's terrifying, of course, but it's very hard to really tackle a problem head on unless you can see what that problem is. So I think that that's, it's actually really important that these reports are coming out. And I'm really sympathetic and, you know, have huge empathy for the kind of panic that that can create in people. But at the same time, I mean, one of the things that sort of psychological research has really shown around you know, climate anxiety and environmental anxiety over the last couple of years is that taking action is the best cure or is the best way to ameliorate the how you feel about what's going on in the world. And sort of the sense of disempowerment is actually perhaps one of the biggest obstacles that we face. Absolutely. And while the IPCC report did provide that stark warning to our global community, I think it also offered a little bit of a glimmer of hope, especially for those of us who work in this field, because we still do have that chance of meeting the Paris Agreement target of limiting temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. But it will require urgent and concrete action and substantial and sustained reductions of carbon dioxide. And with less than 30 days now until COP26, the UN and the UK government have been saying that they want this to be the most ambitious and inclusive climate talk in the history of the COP conference. But for that to happen, governments and world leaders need to take notice of this landmark assessment from the IPCC and enhance their nation's nationally determined contributions accordingly. I mean, the writing's on the wall. Not only that, they need to be looking at some solutions that actually start changing the rules. The nationally determined contributions are important, of course, you've got to have the highest ambition possible. But what we've seen, if you look at the NDC reports from earlier this year, it's actually pathetic how far we've actually got in relation to the targets that we kind of set ourselves. The predictions was that, you know, by 2030, we'd be 1% of the way to a point we should have been 45% of the way towards. And that's where we come in. That's where ecocide law comes in, because all of the nationally determined contributions, all of that ambition, the whole sort of goodwill agreement principle, ultimately, all of that is about saying the right things and intending the right things and playing the game better. And actually, the problem is the game. 
we need to change the rules of the game. That's something that Greta Thunberg said very clearly a couple of years ago, and Polly Higgins used to say it too. The difference with bringing in a criminal law is that you're actually changing the ground rules. You're not just changing the way the game is played. And a good way to illustrate this is by looking at, and, and this is an example from a, a year ago now, which was big multinational company Siemens from Germany was getting a lot of flack for supporting the activities of a coal mine in Australia in terms of something they were providing for them. And the CEO wrote a really interesting sort of essay, a sort of response in the press. And what he said was that his company, Siemens, were doing huge amounts to meet their sustainability goals, to move all of their activities towards more sustainable practices. And they were doing, you know, they were really quite far ahead in their field. And, you know, of course, lots of companies would say this. But what he said was that they were nonetheless bound by existing contracts and fiduciary duties so that effectively they were beholden to the shareholders to do what they had agreed to do within what was lawful. And that's the key phrase. So if the laws within which, within the framework of which those fiduciary duties are being carried out, if those frameworks change, then so do the duties. And so what that means is that instead of a CEO just having to think about how do I go about my next project without killing people, they have to think, how do I go about my next project without killing people and without destroying the environment? It just becomes one of those ground rules. The interesting thing about ecocide law, I mean, we like to think of it almost as a, a kind of acupunctural intervention. It's very precise. It's very strategic. It's, you know, it's one simple thing. Make ecocide an international crime. Just add it to this document. That simple thing is very doable. It's achievable and it has huge potential to change practice and to change attitudes. And so the UK government, for example, right now has an incredible opportunity. They've got the presidency of the COP talks. They're going to want to make it successful. They don't want to look like France did it better in 2015. <laughs> Competitive. <laughs> Competitive. But what's interesting also is that this is such a win-win issue. They can be competitive they, you know, by being the first on the block, if you like, that sort of thing, by taking up this conversation around ecocide. But it's also collaborative. And that is what is being invited in so many different ways now. You know, I mean, it's being invited by the IPCC report, but it's being invited by every global voice on this. We all have to act together. So, you know, we really think that this conversation needs to be a major conversation at the COP talks because it's not going to be enough to increase ambition. Yes, we need to increase ambition. Yes, we need to adjust the NDCs. But we've got to take some concrete steps that go a bit further and actually start sort of shifting the rules of the game. You know, this is not about fixing everything. I mean, you know, murder's been a crime since time immemorial, but, you know, people still murder people. But can you imagine how many murders would take place if murder wasn't a crime? The point is, the normative is there, and that's what this can actually affect. So although it won't fix everything, without putting some kind of hard stop parameter in place, such as ecocide law, it's hard to see how we can fix anything because we carry on talking about emissions reductions and not doing them. We carry on talking about taking steps towards, you know, making practices more sustainable, but it's all kind of baby steps without some kind of more enforceable parameter. A lot of great talk, not enough action. Exactly. Now, your organization started this in 2017. Can you tell us a little bit more about your mission to amend the Rome Statute to include the crime of ecocide and what have been some of the challenges along the way? We're in an interesting position in that we're kind of situated between the legal developments 
And this is where the recently emerged definition of ecocide comes in. We convened a panel of 12 top international criminal and environmental lawyers to spend several months discussing and drafting a legal definition of ecocide that could actually be used by states to take forward at the international level. And that's been a huge milestone and has really somehow brought it into a kind of reality for many, many people. We've already got several governments discussing this, which is very interesting. So there's that. And then obviously that leads on to the political discussion, which much of this actually goes on initially, but behind closed doors. So that sort of growing political traction. And then the third aspect, which is very much where we're visible, is in the public narrative. So being placed in that way is very interesting because we get to kind of see how those influence each other and how we can amplify things. And that's been very useful. It's been a very interesting place to be in. In terms of the public narrative, as I mentioned earlier about the fact that, you know, where we have conversations on the ground, we see the political progress happening. That's really important because there's an interesting aspect to ecocide as a concept that comes into play here. Ecocide as a word is actually very powerful. Many of us, I think, to be honest, probably pretty much everybody has a sense that nature is being severely damaged in many different ways, whether that's the marine environment, whether that's forests, whether that's climate, you know, there's so many different ways. And this word ecocide brings it all together as this is all serious harm to nature. We see people literally having a kind of a light bulb moment where they kind of go, oh my God, this is all ecocide. As soon as that happens, you know it's wrong and you want to stop it. It's obvious that it's a problem. So the internal momentum of the concept is very, very helpful in the area of the public narrative. And what it means is that we're seeing a kind of a snowball effect as that conversation grows into different sectors. And it may or may not be linked directly to our campaign, but that doesn't matter because effectively just the conversation itself creates its own momentum. And it also has its own kind of, this is going to sound quite strange, but but it's almost got a kind of positive effect built into it because I've yet to encounter anybody one-to-one that actually says to me, ecocide should not be a crime. It doesn't happen. People talk about it and, you know, even if at a corporate level or a political party level, they might not be vocal in supporting it. You talk to anybody at a personal level and they'll say, of course, it should be a crime. And, you know, you even end up in a situation where the oil and gas industry have, you know, has spent 30 odd years greenwashing. Are they going to now come out and say, oh, no, we don't think ecocide should be a crime? Well, it's going to destroy millions and billions of pounds worth of PR overnight. (laughs) Of course, they're not going to say that. So on one level, it has this kind of unstoppable quality to it. And that's hugely encouraging. Very encouraging. And, you know, you just reminded me of a story I saw recently from Grist on how Big Oil spent nearly $10 million on Facebook ads alone last year to essentially greenwash. Rather than climate denial, the ads focused more on undermining action by painting oil and gas as a solution to climate change rather than one of the causes. I was asked at a talk recently, you know, what about all this awful greenwashing? And I said, you know what, I'm going to say something really controversial. I love greenwashing. You know why? Because it means that they can't speak out against what we're doing. Because effectively, you know, obviously, greenwashing is all mouth and no trousers, so to speak, as we say in the UK. But at least they feel they have to do it. And the fact they feel they have to do it means that the public consciousness has got to the point where that is necessary. And that in the same way means that it's impossible for them to publicly counter a suggestion like the worst harms to nature should be criminalized. (laughs) How are you going to counter that in that context? You can't. There's something about greenwashing that shows that, okay, it's not there yet by any means. And it's very frustrating when, you know, one thing is being said and something else completely is being done. But 40 years ago, 
they weren't even saying they were doing anything nice. They were just doing the same nasty stuff and <laughs> it was still happening. So it shows the direction of travel. On some level, that's all it does, but it shows the direction of travel while at the same time creating a narrative kind of um, a restriction for them where they have to be positive about the greed side of things. No, I think that's a great way of putting it. I've never thought about greenwashing that way because they really can't come out against these initiatives. They can't say it's really important that we solve it and then keep kicking the can down the road. Now, I know we touched on this a little bit, but I want to go into it a little further. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that the latest installment of the IPCC report is a code red for humanity. How can making ecocide a crime help us battle the climate crisis? Very simply, it goes back to root causes. I mean, we, we touched on this earlier a little bit, but you know, we, we see the climate crisis as effectively a symptom. And you know, ecocide is one of the key root causes. If we reduce all of our emissions you know, tomorrow, but continued to deforest, continued to destroy the seabed, continued to you know, engage in activities that lead to you know, oil spills, nuclear disasters, etc., then we're going to continue finding ourselves back to square one and square one's going to be hotter every time. It doesn't work. So Ecocide addresses those root causes, including you know, potentially key decisions that we know could lead to serious climate disruption and, and so on. So it's a really concrete tool for addressing the crisis that we're in. And I think, you know, yeah, Code Red is pretty much where it's at. I mean, a few years ago, it sometimes felt really difficult to put across what we were doing because people saw it as extreme. And it's this kind of tragic human thing of not feeling how extreme something is until it's literally burning up your town. <laughs> and so there is this extraordinary kind of phenomenon for us where, you know, the worse it gets out there, the more people listen. And I think that when you've got the UN Secretary General saying, you know, this is a red alert, guys, with the World Bank, it's like the global voices are finally catching up. And that creates a space for change. And, you know, crisis is always two things. It's always terrifying and it's always an opportunity. We just need to, to hold on to the fact that that opportunity is there and that with all the horror and all the death and all the persecution and everything that is happening, that there is another way that can emerge out of this chaos. And, you know, and we believe that ecocide law can help create the bridge for that. Absolutely. Now, in your opinion, what should be included in the Civil Society Draft Declaration, which will be discussed at the Stockholm 49 Summit this month, for it to be a true game changer? Any declaration or document that wants to have a chance of creating a concrete impact, positive impact on the global climate and ecological crisis must include ecocide law. Because without a hard stop parameter, which can act as a safety guardrail for corporate activity, for economic and policy decisions, then, you know, without that, we can't possibly approach Paris targets or sustainable development goals or indeed a working human civilization. So I think that that draft must absolutely include ecocide law as part of it. Thank you, Jojo. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right, and there you have it. Ecocide causes mass damage and destruction of ecosystems, serious widespread and long-term harm to nature, and it is one of the root causes of the climate emergency. If we continue with the levels of ecosystem destruction that we've developed over the past decades, we're not just looking at losing our ecosystems. We could be looking at our own extinction because without healthy ecosystems, we cannot survive. Ecocide law is a concrete tool for addressing the root causes of the climate crisis and should be listed as an international crime by the International Criminal Court. 
That is all for today. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022. Please subscribe, share, and be sure to tune in next time to continue the conversation. And visit us at www.theplanetarypress.com for more episodes and the latest news in sustainability, climate change, and the environment.